0: You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hey, people, how are you doing? Welcome to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, and we're actually on episode 132. And um, my name is Matt Phillips. I'm the creator of UnChat Live and also host of this wonderful podcast, which we've done now for 132 weeks in a row. I was just chatting with my guest. Um, and she went, it's amazing. I feel quite empowered. It's wonderful how one word can actually make you feel better about yourself. But yeah, it's true. We've been going for 132 weeks. It was born in COVID when therapists decided maybe we should be talking to each other instead of fighting and, and kind of hiding our prices and things. And we've been going ever since. Um, it is recorded live. So if you're listening to the podcast, thank you very much indeed. Um, if you want to join us and be able to ask the guest questions, um, I was going to say face-to-face, then what's kind of, isn't it, online face-to-online face, then all you got to do is head along to the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel on a Tuesday at 8 o'clock, and that's where we go live and stream from every single week. And if you want to know who's coming on, then you can follow, um, normally it's ST underscore, no, UK underscore STA, or STA underscore UK, I can't even think tonight. I haven't even got a baby brain, my guest has, I'm just, I think it's, feeding off on me but yeah follow the sports lobby association on any channel or me run shot live and you will see who our guests are coming up at the end of this episode i will let you know who's coming next week um but people are already joining us live in the live land, which is wonderful to see gary benson founder of the sta is here when you do join us i can bring your question or your comment up on the screen so you can't hear this on the podcast but gary benson is just so good evening everyone who's joining us live hey gary thanks for joining us um nikki mansfield is in the house um, evening, Gary. Evening all. Lovely. We're getting dialects in here already. Glenn Murphy is here saying this is addictive. This lark eh? is Glen. Thanks for joining us again. Um, Rob Durant is here. Hey, Rob, how are you doing? Catherine Reimer is here as well. And people are flocking into the live lounge, so that's great. Um, if you like the sound of joining us live, it's a great way to meet others. Therapists, soft tissue therapists. You haven't got to be a member of the Sports Therapy Association. Um, whatsoever. In fact, we encourage you to come along to have a chat with other people and see what we're all about. Um, you can be a podiatrist, you can be a chiropractor. let chiropractors in? Yeah, you could be a chiropractor. I'm joking. You could be a physio, um, you could be anything to do with soft tissue therapy. We welcome everybody because it's all about multidisciplinary, isn't it? So there we go. Right. So before I bring up my guest, um, this is focus on the hip this week, but sadly, unfortunately, at the last minute, uh, Benoit Matthew wasn't able to come um, to be my guest last week. Benoy was going to do a fantastic um, introduction on common misconceptions and misdiagnosis of the hip, which is going to be an entry to the whole month's chats. And um, wasn't able to make it, but he will be able to join us at some point during the month when he's just recovered from this horrible stuff that's going around and everyone's getting. And um, So it won't be recorded on a Tuesday because I've got guests now, but we will get it out there um, and it will therefore be released as a podcast. I'll let you know, again, follow us on social media. I will let you know when Benoy is with us if you want to see that live. I would recommend it because he is well, I think a lot of people would definitely put him into the top what number. Should I do? Doesn't matter, isn't does it? I'm not going to give a source. Five hip and groin specialists in the world. There we go. Um, so you definitely come along and listen to that um, fantastic educator, fantastic therapist. So yeah, um, that will happen. But it doesn't matter because we're moving on to tonight's guest. We're going to be talking about hip dysplasia, Okay, which I'm hoping some of you are not that aware of. It's not something that's really introduced Um, until you go to university maybe for a degree Um, definitely not mentioned as in the syllabi which I know about level three and level four sports massage therapy or sports therapy Um, and yet it's something which as we will find out is another one of these things which can go misdiagnosed or undiagnosed because people don't know enough about it so it's a continual theme here and I was chatting to my guest and we will talk about this it's another thing which Potentially, we as soft tissue therapists and non allied health professionals could be helping with with massive fantastic results if we ask the right questions and if we refer the people to who they need to see because they're probably once again going to be coming to us for a chance to lie down, have some massage, walk out feeling better because we know that massage can do that can make people feel better so if we ask the right questions, we can change lives again isn't that a fantastic place to be in the? kind of chain of healthcare. So, um, my guest is Holly um who um, is actually in North London, which is nice, not that far away. It's got a practice in North London, Integrum Physiotherapy, which you can look up on Google. Um, but probably the page maybe more connected to tonight's work is physio.com, which I'll bring up later on. That's the one which has got a wealth of information for you to have a look at. Um, all of these will go into the show notes for the podcast. Um, but really looking forward um, to speaking to Holly, and I encourage you, as always, before I bring her up, she's waiting patiently in the lobby below. Chuck those questions out, okay? It's Truth Tree. What are there? There's there's less than thirty people in here. Okay, we'll be downloaded by about two thousand six hundred, but don't let that put you off, okay? Just ask questions. Use this chance to talk to an expert in the field to ask any questions, um, and I hope you enjoy yourselves. If you listen to the podcast, I will now bring up Holly doing. Listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hey Holly, how are you doing?
1: I am really good. How are you?
0: I'm very well. Thank you much. Thank you so much. In fact, I'll put a so in there. Thank you so much for joining us, given the circumstances, which we should probably get out the way, just in case people are thinking she sounds a little bit vague. Is she really, is she really an expert in this? Baby brain, yeah. Let's just get it out there.
1: Yes, I've got a little teething one and I've had two hours sleep for the last few weeks. (laughs) Yeah,
0: and I feel guilty, Um, but I'll try and get through it. Um, But I've given Holly permission if Holly needs to go. Maybe just even falls asleep. That's fine. I will will edit the podcast. That'd be great. Um, But no, I really appreciate you joining us, especially given those circumstances. Um, So hip dysplasia. First thing to talk about maybe is is. I kind of suggested in the lead up that it is something that does not get diagnosed quickly enough or something that gets misdiagnosed. Um, is that true? Is that a fair thing to say?:
1: Yeah, so even in kind of the, the beginning, what you said about maybe it's something that you see at university, unfortunately, that's another thing I'm trying to raise awareness of because even at university now at physio level, even at master's level, they don't teach dysphasia. You might get one slide if you're lucky or yeah and I've got a patient at the moment who is at uni studying physio and she said out of six lecturers only one knew what it was so it's not widely out there it's not widely taught and that is through levels all the way through I, I think also as medics as well so we need to raise that awareness which is why I'm so grateful that this podcast is out there And that we can raise that awareness because it is so poorly known about and so poorly diagnosed. So there's a study by Nunley uh, in 2011, and it's on average five years to diagnosis for a hip dysplasia patient. And they see an average of three and a half clinicians in that time and are, are misdiagnosed until they then hit that normally third or fourth clinician. And then it's seen as dysplasia which is really sad really because it causes a lot of problems and a lot of young women going through their teens or early 20s a very important time a time of growth and they kind of get told you know oh you need to go to the pain team or it's growing pains or and if you manage with that for 5 years it causes huge psychological issues huge mental health issues huge physical issues and there's a big big I guess detriment to them as a person kind of going forwards and if you don't diagnose in a timely manner that detriment to that person going forwards for their life can be really really severe so awareness is really important.
0: Wow I'm I'm taken aback by the fact that I kind of presumed which is always bad that at university level particularly in physiotherapy that it would be something which was talked about and taught and it, it just shows how how a lot of soft tissue therapists have got this imposter syndrome where they think oh physios have learnt it all but I suppose the work you do and the re- the reason you set up hip dot physio.com was because you saw a gap even amongst physiotherapists like you just said so let's 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 before we... I've got so many questions I want to ask you based on that but before we do can we have just a little for people who aren't sure a definition of hip dysplasia and maybe some of the causes
1: so it's it's kind of again grown in the last 10 years really in that definition because we just thought it was one-dimensional but basically it's a structural pathology but that can also be of the sockets of the acetabulum but also of the femur so you can have different types of dysplasia and that deficiency but the deficiency is present in the acetabulum or the femur so if it's acetabular you can have an anterior deficiency. You can have a posterior deficiency or you can have a global deficiency. So, we've got to remember that everything is three dimensional. Mm-hmm. And then, on top of that, you can have the acetabulum turned forwards, backwards, or the femur turned forwards or backwards. So, that's your or your erect version. And you can combine all of that and you can have version and uncovering as well as also maybe a CAM, which people may have heard of because it's been more prevalent, much more researched out there with the a impingement. But some of our patients will also have a CAM alongside the dysplasia. So it's about the coverage of that socket over that head of that femur and how that works. And there's certain angles that you can look at. So, for example, you've got a lateral center edge angle, which if you take an x-ray and you put a pin in the middle of the femoral head and then you look directly up and then you would measure the amount of coverage out and you want to be between 25 to 35 degrees is your normal so anything under that 25 to 20 is your borderline again the literature varies so it could be down to 18 20 to 25 and then anything less than 18 basically is classed as moderate and then below 10 severe again all of those angles really differ in the literature but that you've got to remember is only looking at one dimension so on your classic x-ray there's also different signs you can look at for your retroversion your antiversion but they're a lot more complex in terms of the angles but your center edge angle is your easy one and then if you really want to diagnose it well and look at the global coverage which you it's very difficult to do on an x-ray you want to have a ct and then they'll percentage evaluate the amount of coverage that that femoral head has got basically
0: and how much of this is there is it something that can develop or or if the right tests are done is it something that can be detected like within the first few months of birth
1: so there's lots of different risk factors and again we don't really know they've only ever Attributed one gene to having a relationship with dysplasia. Lots of risk factors, so family history, firstborn, being female, ligament laxity, breach presentation. So there's lots of risk factors, and they always thought that it was information in the womb, so congenital. Now, actually, we've learned in the latter years that it's both. So we've got can develop in the womb but also can develop after birth. Mm -hmm. And those factors tend to be caused by ligament laxity and there's a massive effect of swaddling. So we don't see really any huge prevalence of dysplasia in African countries. Now, genetics, yes, it's not very prevalent, but also the fact they strap them in the actual treatment position that we would do to themselves, abduction, external rotation and off they go so that actually helps put the hip into its socket so even if they did have some dysplasia the socket then develops around the ball in western countries we tend to swaddle with the legs straight Mm -hmm. and actually that swaddling doesn't put that ball in that socket and it can then affect the way that 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 socket develops so the effect of swaddling has been studied um, a few times and there was a big study in japan and they saw huge differences in those that were swaddled versus those that weren't and that development but up to 50 percent of hip dysplasia patients have ligament laxity so there's a definite effect with that Um, the other thing is also um position in womb so it's often the left hip that's affected more they say because of of how it is on the pelvis but it's up to 75 percent more prevalent in in females um And then there are some links with kind of packaging disorders, so club foot. There hasn't been any links identified with twins, which is I find quite interesting, um, because obviously you've got the firstborn, because it's room in the womb, so you'd have thought there would have been a bit more of a link with twins, but they've said said not. Um, So those are the areas where you can develop it. Either you can have it from birth, or you can develop it as you grow.
0: OK, very interesting. I'm interested to know, because I'm conscious that although so, you've got a son he's one years old and it's more prevalent in women, um, is it eight to one or something or something like that? I think that's quite. So, yeah, it's did you still find yourself asking for tests or aware that you wanted medical staff to do these tests when your son was born? Did it cross so, your mind or did you see that, that enough was done to check for it?
1: No, so that's the other, other thing. So he's uh, he's just nine months now. Mm. Um, and if you have a family history, it's really, really important that anyone who has a family history physically themselves, mm. their child must get tested. So mm. they must have ultrasound screening. Right. Um, now, there's been a lot of differing, uh I guess, management throughout the world. So, for example, in Canada, they screen every baby. And their prevalence of dysplasia has reduced significantly. In the UK, if you have one risk factor, they want you to have an ultrasound scan at five to six weeks. So realistically, the NHS, that's normally six to eight. And unfortunately, it gets very difficult to manage the dysplasia conservatively after eight weeks because of the development that's going on. So again, it's to be discussed. I don't work specifically with pediatrics. But in the baby circles, actually, the fact that they're leaving it for five to six weeks, the cases of dysplasia have actually increased from one to two in a hundred to five. So there's a a big call for getting the screening done earlier, but that's not my specialism. Mm -hmm. Um, But within the paediatric physios, that is something that that needs to be discussed. I had an option on a six-week review for my baby and then... I was very lucky because I work at Stanmore and we've got a pediatric team and I had an amazing house visitor and she put a fast track referral in and we're lucky at Stanmore in that they see everyone at two weeks so they get everyone through the door they scan everyone at two weeks and then obviously they're they're my pediatric team so they scanned him at two weeks and then they scanned him at 12 weeks and they really monitored him and everything was fine because he's a boy
0: because <laughs> <laughs> he's a boy um because we should mention, for people who don't know, you were diagnosed later on in life, yes? Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about that. And, and, and I suppose that must be frustrating for you because you, I don't know whether, is there something that could have been done earlier on, even within the first few weeks or month of your life, which could have saved you 20 odd years, whatever it was, of discomfort?
1: So I think I should probably say that the, the other sad thing is that the tests that they do, the kicky hip tests that they do at birth, Again, they're not very specific. Um, they haven't changed in 30, 40 years. And it's just someone coming and going, oh, did, do they feel a click? Do they think there's good enough socket? It's not very specific at all. And all of us will have been tested. And my, I'm the older sibling, but my sister um, had dysplasia, but again, was missed. She had treatment 18 months when she started trying to walk and couldn't really walk and it was very severe treatment and they never tested me because oh she's walking around she's fine and mum says she remembers you know multiple people coming in the hospital 30 people coming to do the kicky hip test because they weren't quite sure so if there's any discussion or anyone's not sure or there's any risk factor those tests have to change but how do we make them specific again don't know but I think the way to go is Canada's way which is screen every baby because if you catch dysplasia early enough you treat it and you can treat it conservatively the medical burden both to the NHS and to the patient you're not going through these huge operations you're not going through this horrible diagnosis in your teens or twenties and having to manage this through the rest of your life because it's hopefully, been well-managed when you're a baby. Mm. Not every single case you can manage conservatively. There will be some that will require surgery, some that the ball and socket doesn't grow right around for various reasons. But you could eliminate a huge detriment of dysplasia by managing it right from the very beginning and catching it at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So So frustrating. Yeah very frustrating and I then went through my whole life I played a lot of elite sports and I actually worked with the military at Headley Court and we were training with um, some of our guys who were injured in Afghanistan for Ironman and that's when I started getting some hip pain and then it kind of all spiraled from there a lot of things I wasn't expecting you know I was never expecting someone to say I had this and yeah it was quite a shock I don't you know again we said was I very aware of hip dysplasia? No. Was I a physio? Yes. Mm. But it, you know, it had been one slide and in and out an ear and yeah, it was, it's quite a shock when you get told that and the surgery is so major that mm. it was a big, big shock for me.
0: Which kind of helps us move forward because you were 25, yeah? And you were physio, when, did, when were you, when did you? Um, uh, yeah, I qualified
1: 20? 21, 22. Yeah. Okay,
0: fine. So you had three years. That's really interesting. I I might
1: have only been 23 or 24 so yeah
0: yeah. So looking back okay so it's so useful when somebody has actually been through themselves I think it happens quite a lot doesn't it you suffer from something we've we've spoken to um, people about endometriosis hypermobility Ellidan syndrome all these things and often it's somebody who's suffered from that and they've just realised no one is knows what they're talking about it's kind of it's it's in a weird way at least you managed to turn the pain and suffering and, and frustration to something positive and see other people which is how you know um but um looking back because now imagine we're moving into soft tissue therapists who are getting plenty of 20 plus um females maybe athletic like yourself doing what did you have any particular sports i forget you played quite elite didn't you what was it i uh,
1: played hockey and um, horse riding so
0: okay and presumably you weren't suffering from dislocations and kind of
1: so very i don't think i've ever 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 in a non-neurological patient mm-hmm. seen an actual dislocated hip right so those with cerebral palsy you might see some sort of neurological issue but true dislocation in a hip okay. in a, in a native hip doesn't happen you can have subluxations okay um, because of the joint not being right so for example as well as the socket coverage the socket angle so that's the edge of your index if it's sloping up the ball will start to slip up like this now that would be called a subluxation of sort because it's not in its its socket and it's ending up using the socket up here but actual true coming in and coming out like a mm-hmm. shoulder I've never seen that happen and if it does it's more your cerebral palsy patients or some neurological disorder
0: and subluxations then was there anything looking back you think oh that's why I mean were you getting the symptomatic clicking or giving way or anything because these things I've read the symptoms and a lot of them Signs potentially of something else anyway which are kind of like little red flags and kind of would warrant maybe investigating maybe imaging whenever even soft tissue therapists when they're taught the very basic red flags giving way or clicking is something like oh something's you know pass it on to somebody who's higher qualified or something so you weren't getting any of that yeah very interesting and
1: and i'm stupidly hypermobile right it. were you
0: aware so you one of these people who had party tricks and you just thought it was a laugh and people clapped when really that was a sign because we've had some interesting chats about hypermobility and it's like often it is a party trick and that as opposed to doing party tricks that person should be going to consult the gp maybe a few times and say no listen it's not normal that i can do this right okay
1: so i think um displays your differs to well, again i'm sure there's a much bigger awareness about Restabular impingement, and those symptoms, and that's more of your kind of outside in. So that cam or that pincer causes that sort of carpet lifting up of the labrum. Your dysplasia is more of your inside-out damage. So the first thing that normally is a symptom is a label tear, and that is caused because in dysplasia you get the shearing because of the lack of coverage of the socket, and the labrum is trying to increase that volume, it's trying to increase that surface area of that socket and provide that negative suction. Now in dysplasia it's got to work 11 times harder than in a normal hip so what happens over the years is it gets thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker trying to hold it in and then eventually it tears and then you start to get the cartilage damage underneath that whereas with FAI you get that peeling up of the labrum from the outside inwards. So often that labrum clicking, pinching, it can present itself like FAI, which is why it makes it very difficult to diagnose. And often it's also overload. So um post-childbirth or post like everything else, you know, change in activity, running a marathon, doing something different, you start to get this overload and it's more exercise related pain. And as that Gets worse and worse and worse. It can then be sustained postures, and that can also cause that pain. But it's either your symptoms most prevalent: are anterior groin pain, catching, clicking, and locking because that labrum's getting caught, and then you get more the lateral structures overload. So lateral hip pain is the second most prevalent, and your hip flexor pain. So those are the kind of symptoms that. You're presenting with. So for me, it was the anterior groin pain. That when the labrum went, it was the clicking, the catching. I did get that mm-hmm. until I was 24, no issues. And they say, then the research says, if you're if you're more severe in the dysplasia, you're young and you're very active, you're more likely to fail earlier. If you're not that active less severe so your mild dysplasias you can manage or you fail later so later into your 20s rather than your late teens early 20s. Mm -hmm.
0: So I'm thinking now of people coming into the clinic because a lot of the symptoms you've said could be especially if that person's acting they're doing sport they could be missed or alternative solutions or exercises or just take some time out you need to relax you might be doing too much too soon that kind of overload idea could be missing the point so what do you think clinicians could add to either the subject you've made it sound like the objective is not very accurate unless there is something what could a therapist add to the subjective or the um, objective which would raise alarm bells for someone like you who came in at 22 23 suffering these things which would help you getting the diagnosis like a year or two earlier
1: so i think it's important i always go through their birth history Mm -hmm. um which they may not seem as relevant, and most people may not know it. But I want to know, did they have normal birth? Quite often you actually explore that, and they go, oh, yeah, I was in a cast or a spiker or a sling or something. I remember that, or they may not. But actually then you'll find that they have a history of being managed conservatively when they were younger, and maybe it hasn't then been monitored going through. Also family history of dysplasia. And asking those sorts of questions, has your mum and dad got, you know, hip problems? Have they had early hip replacements? Because they may also not know that it was dysplasia, the parents, but they've had, oh, yeah, they had a hip replacement at 40. So really important to explore that. Siblings with it. um, Checking for that hypermobility. If you've done a lot on down loss and if you think 50% have that hypermobility, that can have that massive effect. So definitely subjective questioning. On that and family history. Your your symptoms of your clicking, ca- catching, locking, giving way. Are you thinking there could be that labral tear there causing that problem? The tests for dysplasia are very ambiguous and there is no consensus like in FAI, but the gold standard is the x ray. There are some tests you can do, um, like the ab here test. So you're doing abduction extension and external rotation, and you're applying a pressure on the femur, so you get that anterior draw, and if they don't like it and they're really apprehensive, so it's called an apprehension test, you know that they're unsure, it's unstable, that's the feedback they're giving you. And there are a few of those, but again, they're not very specific. So it's got to raise that awareness, that question, have I got a young female in front of me that's got hip pain? then your suspicion should firstly be dysplasia. If it's a male, a young male in front of you, then you're thinking more of your cam. But that that young female with that kind of static overload pain, you want to think dysplasia is your first port of call unless you're getting the really severe red flags of constant night pain and you're thinking your stress fractures and... Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're going to screen through all of your women's health stuff as well. Of course, it could be adductor-related. It could be abdominal-related hip pain. But if it's a young female, I would always have that awareness and that suspicion in front of me. And then if you're going to treat it, the problem, the main problem, I think, with dysplasia is that so many physios, so many medics, so many sports therapists, so anyone medical professional that has a dysplastic patient in front of them but doesn't know it treats the hip flexor and in my opinion it's never ever the hip flexor the hip flexor in dysplasia is a guarder so there's been studies it shows the iliacaptularis for example hypertrophy significantly in dysplasia so if you're thinking oh it's the hip flexor i'll massage it we'll make it better it's always a secondary to something else that is going on Mm -hmm. and that hip flexor is trying to hold that hip in its socket along with the labrum as it comes down the front and comes over that pelvic brim it's trying to stop that and it's switching on to try and stop that shearing that's going on so yes they have got hip flexor tendinopathy or a tight hip flexor but then what happens is they go for stretching for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and you're stretching something it's trying to stabilise, so it actually makes them worse, it uh-huh. destabilises them, and they don't get any change. So I think if, if your patient isn't changing within, at all within six weeks, 12 weeks, they need to be sent on for a physio to do some tests and say, right, let's look at this, or sent to the GP, do you think we should x-ray? But even then, my main issue, I think it also happens in radiology as well, hip dysplasia doesn't get flagged so an x-ray may come back to me and be like oh there's no arthritis and i'm like but they've got no socket Mm -hmm. (laughs) they've got clear dysplasia but the radiology team aren't looking for that so because they're a young person they go oh no arthritis they're fine but you've got no socket sat in front of you and i go well you've got dysplasia but nobody's actually picked it up. And in in primary care, that quite often happens. So they go to a GP, they get that scan and they go, oh, my scan was fine. And I'm like, give me the scan. Let me see it. I want to see the scan. And then you find it. So that it's just the whole general awareness throughout every profession just needs to be raised so that that suspicion, we're looking for it. We're seeing it. We're not just looking for no stress fracture, no arthritis. Mm -hmm. We're all good. There's no tumour
0: yeah so many questions um i've got to remember we've got people in the live lounge who have asked questions a little i think some have been answered in your dialogue for example gary a while ago sorry to leave you hanging there gary gary benson says is there any truth in the increased prevalence of hip dysplasia in breech born infants or more common in twins also is there routine screening post-birth when it was introduced i think we covered that is there anything which we didn't mention um definitely with the breech birth we said yes um, twins we said no Interestingly enough, uh, routine screening, we mentioned post-birth, just a little, is there a click in the hips when they do that? I remember, well, not remember having it done to me, but I remember the doctors doing it to my kid and then they did kind of a let's drop him and see if he kind of reflex action and that, that was about it. Um, um, yeah, so I think those questions are the answer. So I did leave you hanging there, Gary. Um, and Nikki Mansfield has come in the question saying, is dysplasia only ever congenital or can it be functional at all? So we kind of mentioned it, it might not manifest itself until later on because it's been exaggerated maybe due to things like swaddling and other practices like that yeah but is it always is the, is the initial cause always there but it would just come out later or could it be
1: no so you can have normal hips at birth mm-hmm. but obviously if you if you've ever seen an x-ray of a, a pediatric x-ray it looks like a little p mm-hmm. and then you've got your three parts of the socket as you have your growth plates so it's a pee and a little three bits like this. So that socket has to grow around and the femoral head has to grow into its shape. So that's why different stresses can cause issues because if, if you're constantly straight and you're swaddled for 12 hours like this, that ball isn't in that socket. So that socket might grow like this rather than the corrected roundness. Or So functional probably isn't the right word because it's not, functional issue it is congenital versus developmental but the overview now is it's all called developmental dysplasia because it's development in the womb or development as as they grow
0: good question nikki yeah i'm trying to forget about swaddling because that seems like i mean i remember being shown at like prenatal classes how to swaddle and how to put the baby in it's like why did once again why did they not tell me to do the opposite or oh, it's it's pretty crazy that's but quite frustrating
1: my health visitor didn't know that swaddling is a cause of just dis- like again they don't they don't know they, this awareness isn't out there so now there's a lot more swaddles that have as long as the baby can move their hips like this mm. into that abduction it's fine to swaddle so swaddle up here mm. but leave the hips free i just stayed way away from doing anything with my baby because I was just like, I'm so paranoid, I won't do anything. But
0: Yeah. No, very interesting one. Um Becky has come in with a question now. We've got people talking now. That's it. People are letting them it's always the same, isn't it, a classroom. One person asks a question, then everyone else starts. Becky says, can you be asymptomatic with dysplasia? If so, how common would this be? Um so you were pretty asymptomatic, weren't you until
1: so uh, Becky, great question. Absolutely. Um We actually think that up to 60% of the arthritic patients that we get through that come and have hip replacements are asymptomatic and end up, we know the natural progression is development of arthritis with dysplasia. But up to 60% of those hip replacements are dysplastic patients that may not have been picked up. They may have had hip pain at times. Um, It's like any pathology. You can scan 100 people and 50% might have dysplasia, and 50% or 100% may have absolutely no problems or issues. What is the catalyst and what tips over the edge? Again, completely multifactorial. Um, There's lots of poles of thought. There's very limited research in dysplasia. We're about 20 years behind FAI. So I can tell you what I think. Surgeons have very different opinions. So for me... I had my left hip operated on and my right hip is severely dysplastic with a massive labral tear and I've had surgeons say, you need a PAO on that, that has to be done now, that hip's failing, you've had pain, like I've had times where I couldn't walk on it. Now I've done my rehab, I've worked my ass off and I don't have any pain in my right hip. But they're telling me that will fail, it's a failing hip because you've started to have symptoms, you need the surgery. It's been 10 years. I've x-rayed it every year there's no progression of arthritis why is that i can tell you the rehab i do i can't give you a research paper that says this is the right thing to do but i can tell you it's worked for me and i can tell you that i've argued it against multiple surgeons that want to operate just because i have dysplasia and that's a whole nother question because again we don't know with the surgery what's the right surgery to do because the periacetabular osteotomy is huge and it's a life-changing operation. Would would a dysplasia patient be better to manage until they've got severe arthritis and just have a hip replacement? Because it's an easier operation, not as severe. It's more complex because you've got less of a socket to put in, but it's an easier operation than the PAO. So 100%, you can be asymptomatic, you can be asymptomatic to a level, but then we also have all of these really mild borderline dysplasias that, They've got agonizing symptoms and they're, you know, they're 25. They're literally on borderline of normal. Okay. A lot of them then have a background of ehlers loss or hypermobility or, you know, why are they in so much pain versus someone who's got a center edge angle of 10 and they've got 25 and the coverage is pretty similar if you look on a CT. Every patient is so different. And what are those factors? We just don't know the answer in any pathology, to be honest. But great
0: question. Becky's always like that. I can guarantee Becky's here. Great question. Always. Thanks, Becky. And Nikki's come back here. um, And For those of you listening to the podcast, your questions come up on the screen. That's why I'm reading them out. They are on the screen. And in fact, if you listen to the podcast, you can always watch this video back on YouTube. Just go to the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel. You can see the questions come up. So Nikki says, so is it just imaging that would definitively differentiate between a young woman with hip dysplasia and a young hypermobile female with subluxations and groin pain? similar histories that was a sharp intake of breath by our guest for those listening to the podcast she's thinking about the answer
1: I think it's a very interesting question Um, I would say I don't think I've seen any hypermobiles with subluxations that don't have some type of altered anatomy You've got to remember how, and this is what's become out in the last few years, is this 3D dimensional nature of this. And you're not going to just get that on an X-ray. So if they're having subluxations, you've got to think of those. The way I teach it is you've got your passive system and your active system. So is there some sort of anatomical change in the bones? Likely. Then you've got your passive system being the ligaments. So if they're hypermobile, they've got LSdan danlos they've got poor passive system of that ligamentous stability. So the only thing we can give them is the active system is strengthening the muscles. So my suspicion in answer to that question would be I'm not sure I've ever seen a hypermobile female with subluxations and groin pain, and then not be some type. Of anatomical change, whether it be version, percentage coverage, some type of dysplasia that's also going on. Yes it might be mild, it might be really severe. Um, So the question answer would be I'm not sure I would differentiate it because the x-ray I think would show that there is something anatomically going on. So yes completely similar histories
0: another great question Nikki. Thank, thank you very much you mentioned the rehab um, and you said that the rehab was what worked for you and the research isn't there but i think it'd be interesting to hear it, okay it's an n equals one maybe in this case but 10 years what sort of rehab have you been doing has it changed over the 10 years
1: so i think the most important thing to do is educate the patient Make them understand what is going on with their hip. And and I teach them that exactly. Like you haven't got a great passive system. So terrible bones, terrible ligaments, but we can give you strength. But there's this fear. And it's also something I don't know how to work correctly. I've been talking to a few psychologists, but people get told I've got dysplasia or I've got a labral tear. I can't do anything. I shouldn't do anything. I can't. It's really interesting working with different personalities of taking that into I can or I will or, you know, I was told by my surgical team, my hip would last six months. They get a text every year reminding them that it's year 10 this year. But the language we use is so important and the understanding, if you just explain to them, okay, you've got a labral tear. This is what it means. This is what it does. This is how we can make it better. We can't change that there's a tear but we can offload it and change that pain. That is possible. And again, you could scan 100 people, 50% of those would have a labral tear, which is asymptomatic. We know that's true in the literature. Why is that? We don't know. Um, But the understanding of their condition and how to manage it, I think is the most important thing because it then empowers them to move forwards and be able to rehab and know what they need to do. Improving the physical condition of the hip is important. So with the hypermobile patients, they often stand in sway posture, so they're hanging off those ligaments, so they're hanging off psoas. And again, there's not big RCTs, but case studies, a very prevalent physio researcher, Lewis and Sharman, they did case studies. They found that actually changing gait and posture had a long-lasting effect on those dysplasia patients with that kind of static overload. So if they're not hanging on those ligaments, knees in hyperextension, forcing the hips into anterior compression, then they're not getting that static overload and you can change that pain. And then walking again, find racing out, walking big strides, but for every big stride you do, for every increase in one degree of hip extension, it's 20% of your body weight goes through the front of that hip. So if they've got an anterior deficiency, then they're going to overload psoas, they're going to overload their glutes. So teaching them to walk quieter, leading with the knee, shorter, smaller steps, so you don't have that big hip extension moment can make a massive difference to their pain when they're walking. And it changes that ground reaction force and the amount of force that's going up through the hip itself. Preventing them doing things like yoga, sustained end-range positions, Stop all that. Stop any hip flexor stretching. Don't do any stretching. It's all about stability. You want to really get the deep stabilizers of the hip going and working. So I don't do anything open chain, no lifting out to the side. If you look at the literature, and it has only recently been done in dysplasia, but Alison Grimaldi's work in arthritis, if you look at her PhD work, everything when you have pathology, wastes away when she did mri studies is deep so all of those deep muscles glute min glute med, gmaili, they all waste away it's all the superficial ones that stay the same so did that in arthritis then it was um the burn in bed rest study so that was done by bella v in 2012 and they looked at astronauts and they put them in bed for eight weeks And they MRI'd them pre and post. And again, they saw that the deep muscles wasted the way. The superficial muscles stayed the same. So we know that there's an effect of unloading. Don't even need pathology. If you unload something and you rest something, it's the deep muscles. But if you look at what glute glute med does, they're the ones that attach to the capsule. And they're the ones that have the proprioceptive control around the hip. And they're the ones that influence that hip in its socket rather than big moving actions so if we think about dysplasia and that lack of that stability you get that shearing what do we need to work we need to work those ones that hold it not ones that do big big Mm -hmm. moving so anything that's kind of open chain it kind of influences that superficial system to kick in so you i often see tfls overworking you see massive tfl hypertrophy so a soft tissue therapist you might see someone come in oh I've got hip flexor tightness I've got psoas issues I've got TFL you know you see big TFLs got a really lovely MRI where you can see that you get about a 76% increase in TFL and glute med versus atrophy of glute med and that was in a hip replacement with an OA but Um, a new study was done by charlin in 2020 that was looking at fai and dysplasia and again they saw that same pattern happening but it was just something that i had thought for years and then finally it's kind of come out in the literature so the most important thing is to get those deep muscles firing and i think my big thing is proprioceptive work so standing on a bosu unstable surfaces work because that deep system has to fire they can't cheat because that unstable surface makes you work those muscles that have that proprioceptive role that's attached to the capsule. Um, Do you you find, just
0: a question, will you find with these people, like with your case, do you find that challenging? Is using a BOSU board or something or something which really you don't want to do because you know you're not very good at it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you haven't watched my hours of videos, have you? (laughs)
0: Uh, but would you i'm thinking because you've told somebody who maybe has got a lot of mobility and is great at doing yoga and stretches because i know from clients of my own it's really difficult sometimes to tell someone who you, you're trying to develop maybe they're really flexible okay and they love doing yoga because they feel good and in the class they're almost getting applauded by everybody and really that's not helping it could be aggravating like you say hip flexors and things as they're doing stretches and stuff And then you try, not only do you take that away from them, which is something like identity, and that can be quite tricky, but also you try giving them something which they might not be particularly good at because they've shone away from it. So that's tricky. So I'm just thinking of that. How do you take something away that they're good at and give them something they're not good at? Any tips?
1: That's where it comes down to education. Right. It it has to start there. And I, I literally show them through a presentation being like, this is your socket. This is this is what you need to stabilize the hip. This is what you don't have. Okay, I know you love yoga, but can you see if you're pushing your ligaments that are already lax with a bony anatomy that you have, if you haven't got stability, you're just forcing that into end of range and annoying that labrum. You're annoying that tear. I can I can tell you I can make it better, but if you keep pinching it and forcing it and stretching it, you're just going to keep aggravating it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and then it's working with them so if they love yoga that's absolutely fine but they can do yoga but adjust how they do it so if they're anteriorly deficient they won't want that stretch through the front if they're posteriorly deficient they don't want to do deep flexion squats sitting in a chair because it's popping out the back If they're globally deficient they might be popping out in all sorts of directions they can still do their yoga but reduce that end of range stretch just bend the knee a little bit, tuck the pelvis, keep that that activation and that neutral rather than forcing to end of range. So it's working with them and listening because there's no point telling someone to do something they don't want to do. Mm. Um, And then I think that the main thing is the ones that are really, really sore and really think they can't do anything, I try and just find something because, as I said, some of them don't like exercise, they don't want to do anything, but even just some... Global strengthening. Okay, we're not going to touch your hips, which is why I like the Bosu. Can you stand on that? But like, can you do some upper limb weights on it? We're not moving your hip, but your core is activating, your kinetic chain, you're getting all your fascial lines working. They don't even know, but they're helping their hip because of that strengthening of that core stability. Nice. So then I think the other question, going back to the question about the surgery. So the surgery, don't worry, you don't trigger anything. Um, the surgery is massive so a periostabular osteotomy is basically the mainstay of treatment in a mild dysplasia again big arguments um, in the surgical world if mild dysplasia should we just do an arthroscopy, repair the labrum my argument is if you do a scope you go in and you affect the capsule you affect the ligaments, a lot of scope surgeons don't repair the capsule so you destabilize them even more um so we don't know what the gold standard is in mild dysplasia because your pao surgeon will say pao your scope surgeon will say a scope and obviously your physio will say physio um but the periacetabular osteotomy basically they fracture the pelvis in three the socket is off the pelvis and then they move it to the position they want it in so they can obviously rotate it turn it forward backwards and then they put three massive pins back through the pelvis to pin the whole thing back together. And then you just wait for those fractures to heal. But in the meantime, obviously, to get to that, be able to take that socket off, they've got to peel back all of the layers. So you go through inguinal ligament, you reflect off rectus femoris, you reflect off your obliques. And there's all these issues. You take them off to be able to access the pelvis, stick them back down again. You often end up, most patients end up with lateral cutaneous nerve damage, so sensory nerve of the thigh. That can be really, really painful, even though it's just sensory, it's not motor. Um, Obviously, there are risks of sciatic nerve damage. It's major, major surgery, and it's four months on crutches before you even start really doing your rehab. You're touch weight-bearing for six to 12 weeks, and then you gradually progress. But it's very limited, Um, and then it's just it's all target based so re-x-ray are you healing are you not healing okay you go from touch weight bearing to you're allowed to put 50% on getting them in the pool at that early stage up to chest height so they're touch weight bearing and walking just normalising movement because actually I again have big arguments with the surgeons all the time but sometimes they non-weight bear them and actually non-weight bearing suspending the femur causes a lot more tension in psoas and that flexor combination and then you end up with hip flexor issues later down the line because of non-weight bearing them so the touch weight bearing is quite important and then once you hit that bone healing it's then you know fairly easy to rehab in terms of you then just start them on their normal protocol can they can they stand can they walk can they single leg balance do they have the glute control so you're just looking at return to sport as you go along that line but there's so many non-unions and it's a really complex start and again so difficult to manage as a physio or as a sports therapist because you can't really get in and do it much work because they've got three giant fractures through their pelvis they're in agony in the you get little movement and control so i always start them just you know core pilates based stuff getting that control right but often they've had years and years of altered movement patterning and then that's where you would see they haven't got hot been got hold of and that corrected movement patterning pre-op that movement patterning is going to stay post-op so you get them doing exercises, but they're using tfl they're using psoas they're not using those deep stabilizers so you kind of have to undo everything and they've got that trendelenburg lurch because the glute's not working that's going to carry on post-op if you don't start to correct all that so you've got learned patterning and there's so much to do Mm -hmm. um the rehab program for best success uh again there's absolutely no research literature out there i can just tell you exactly what i've told you in terms of what i do um goal setting is really really important working with your specific patient is so important And even if they do require surgery, getting them on board and undoing all of that learned behavior, that learned patterning is really important from the beginning. And then I would like to say, how many of those patients can I take through that they say they need surgery and I can get them pain-free or to a quality of life that they can manage? But again, there's another study in that because there's so much that could be done that isn't out there. Um, Let me have a look. So... I think that's answered yours, Nikki.
0: That was Nikki. Becky now, if you're okay Becky. with that. I'll read it out to the podcast listeners. So Becky Cowell's come back with a I have a 40-year-old female that has been diagnosed with dysplasia. The emotional and psychological damage done on her journey to a diagnosis is the biggest obstacle I'm facing with her rehab.
1: Yeah. And and this is exactly why that time to diagnosis is so important. So I cannot focus enough that if they're not getting better within six to twelve weeks send for onward investigations if they're a young female because it's that uh, I don't think you know I think it's growing pains or mm, I can't really find anything I don't know why you're in pain It, it mm-hmm. it's that non-belief and then finally they suddenly feel heard but then I, I do think it's those that are, are then like well I can't do anything I've got to be in a wheelchair because I've got dysplasia, I've got labrum, someone's finally heard me and I think if we get hold of those patients earlier and go through their understanding and educate them then we may catch and break some of this psychological trauma that they've gone through. I think there's you know with the surgery there's even more psychological trauma because it's so major you end up with massive scars and the the rehab is just unbelievable and I say that having done it myself and then it didn't work and I ended up having another one as well but it definitely kind of changed my whole outlook on life and they're all young women and they can't I think the main thing is also they've spent five years not being able to go out with their mates or go to the pub or and they lose their social life because well, I can't go for a walk or I can't stand in heels or and they end up really isolated so I think just to help you listening and understanding and kind of actively listening and and feeding back I've heard how difficult this was for you um A piece of research I did and then wrote, so there's a a booklet that's on both my hip dysplasia website and on the Stanmore website about dysplasia because one of the main things that came up from my research was patients get a letter. They, They have all these years of not being listened to. They finally see a consultant that knows what they're talking about. They get told they've got hip dysplasia and they don't really hear anything else. I certainly didn't. And I know what it is. And you get told you've got to have this surgery and blah, 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 blah. But you don't, you don't hear any of that and you leave your consult. And then this letter appears with all these big words, labrum, acetabulum, acetabular index, lateral center edge angle, blah, 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 blah. They don't understand any of it. So I wrote this, this booklet with another physio who also had dysplasia and it kind of goes through everything. What it is, what these angles are. It shows pictures. It shows what the labrum is, what the angles mean. And so that they can look and go, oh, okay, um, what stabilizes the hip? How can you manage it conservatively? What are the different treatment options? So that they feel like they're empowered to understand what's going on and then move forward. But you do definitely need psychological input with some of these, these young women, both if they've had surgery or not. And that's the first port of call, because if they're not ready to accept that they've got that diagnosis, and then move forwards with a plan. And that's why your goal setting is so important and why what their interests are is so important. Because there's no point in me saying do Pilates or this exercise or go to the gym and get strong. They have no interest. But again, I also always break it down. So they'll be like, oh, well, I can't walk. And I'm like, but you can't push your body weight on two legs, let alone one leg. And walking, you're physically lifting your body weight which is 60, 70, 80 kilos, whatever it may be, on one leg. So can you see that if I put you on a leg press and you can only push 30 kilos, double leg, you're going to get overload. You're going to get overload through all of your tissues, but your issue is you have an unstable hip. So that's going to take even more. And that's where that whole global chain strengthening is really important, because if you weaken your calf muscles you're going to get more anterior shear to drive that hip and body weight forwards through that front of that hip therefore you've got dysplasia Strengthen the calf you reduce some of that pressure on that anterior hip because they can physically do it with the right calf muscles and that's where you can kind of okay hands off we're not going to touch your hip less strength than somewhere else and it can have a benefit
0: amazing that's so interesting yeah um I love the idea that uh, of a company kind of, of obviously i look after runners but it there's that idea that getting strong isn't enough and the research shows that you can get stronger in your hip abductors for example and your body won't have to automatically change the kinematic way it's moving and stuff just because you're stronger, So you need that retraining as well so that makes sense it's not just the strength exercises. well i imagine a lot of people have visited well-meaning physios or whatever and they've been given the strength exercises but they're not being introduced to now i need to look at posture and you look at moving like you said walking the amount of hip extension and that fascinating stuff you mentioned your website i'm just going to bring this up here for people watching um, on youtube or bring it up here we can still hear you even though it's on full page so it's hip dysplasia physio.com and as um, you mentioned there's the hip dysplasia leaflet there with a link at the top there's also exercises latest research pao rehab guidelines and a load of information there is that I'm not trying to get you to blow your own trumpet, but would you say that's probably one of the best places for up to date information on hip dysplasia? Do you have to be wary of other sources of information or is there anybody else who you think should be mentioned in the in the show notes in terms of giving up to date information?
1: Um, So now I'm not going to blow my own trumpet because uh, I'm really useless at updating that. (laughs) That's honest. What other
0: organisations or charities or kind of websites are also giving quality information? Because we know that there's a, a danger of it not being quality
1: Yeah, so I'd really recommend the International Hip Dysplasia Institute. Um yeah. they are kind of the worldwide leader. And then there's also I'm a hippie, which is um a charity run by a consultant in Canada who has this vision that he wants to eliminate dysplasia throughout the world and that it shouldn't matter where you are in the world, but that you can have care, the right care for dysplasia. Um so they're an amazing institution and uh, just going to go big guns. Basically, they're giving, you know, grants for research and they're absolutely inspirational. So if you've got Instagram, uh, probably the the place where I talk the most is my Instagram um, in terms of latest research and put things out there and videos and rehab ideas and discussions. But, yeah, I'd really follow International Hip Blazer Institute and. Um, and I'm a hippie and then there is also a lovely lady um, Laura who does she's also a physio and she's got dysplasia and she does a podcast called help for hip dysplasia so she has a podcast where she gets people talking various clinicians various patients um, and she talks through various things
0: I'll make sure those links go into the show notes if you want to see the show notes um, then they're always available on Podbean. Um, I also put them on the YouTube channel later on. I go in there and painstakingly break it down into the different minutes and, and put all the links in there. And also you can go to thesta.co.uk. I'll put the show notes in there as well. So all these links will be there as well. Um, shout out to your other website. Obviously you're based in North London. Um, your social media is generally Integrum Physio, isn't it? At Integrum Physio. <laughs> or have you got so, another one?
1: Uh, go ahead, go ahead. So it's, I have... The Integrum is kind of more my vet stuff, but alongside my hip dysplasia stuff. So yeah. I, for all of you out there that don't know, I, I did a vet masters and treat animals, which is the as best. As well, in a spare
0: time, also looks after the um, animal
1: yeah. But, um, so I have a, a an Instagram hip dysplasia physio. So okay, that's where fine. most of sure the well. stuff is.
0: Okay. Talking of your animals, where are your animals? Here we go. So yeah, the Integrum Physio website, let's bring that up on full as well. There you go. You can't quite see all the beautiful pooches dogs there as well so yeah it says there for people listening to the podcast uh, north london-based physiotherapy service providing home visits for both human and animal physio so yeah you mentioned you studied that as well did you was that like were you more interested in animals first or what came first humans or animals or both
1: uh no so you do your humans first then you do a minimum of two years as a human physio and then you are allowed to do your master's in vet right. yeah i only recently did it but it's the oh really
0: one. all right so yeah, that's integrumphysiotherapy.co.uk. That website is where is as well there for you to have a little look at. Um, and of course, we we're talking just briefly before you went on air. There's animals can have hip dysplasia as well, and and you look after animals with that as well. Yeah.
1: Interestingly, dogs are always born with morphologically normal hips, so they only develop dysplasia.
0: Wow, gosh, that so, was a shell you... to drop in at the last minute. So they're always born okay. It's just something that's developed because of.
1: Again, external factors, internal factors. So ligament laxities, um, main one is over-exercising them when they're they're too young. So that's why when you have a puppy, if any of you do, you get told five minutes for every um, month of their life. So if you go out and walk your three-month puppy for an hour, it's too long and it can affect the way the bones grow.
0: All right, there's something to look up there for people. Um, you can also, not not only can you look after your clients better now, soft tissue therapists, you can even look after their pets with um, <laughs> clinical gold like that. That's that's amazing. I was also interested to see that um, actually for, for adults, horse riding can be encouraged as well because that and other pastimes because that encourages the body to go into that um, abduction position. So that was interesting to see as well, especially again, if it's caught earlier on with toddlers and that's something that can be introduced, um, which was interesting to see. Right. We have reached the time. Um, Take home messages, it seems for soft tissue therapists is again, it's kind of the subjective, wasn't it? Um, It was asking the right questions and we've seen that time and time again, you know, opening that dialogue. There's a history, unfortunately, among soft tissue therapists to jump into the to the objective to look for symmetry, to do the test, to do the leg-leg differences. And as soon as you find asymmetry, then you apply all your manual techniques to make that person symmetrical again. And and you know what, 50% of the time that person might feel better and tell you they're better, but we forget about the other 50% who don't come back and we just sing our praises and we can scrape a living. But it's getting worse because of people like us on the Sports Therapy Association podcast, because we are singing the truths and making um, the public as well realise that that's not really the answer so this is slipped in again to subjective ask the questions which other therapists aren't asking listen to the patient enough and they'll tell you what's wrong with them and then listen again and they'll tell you how to fix them that whole kind of t-shirt thing so it's really interesting Holly to hear that supported again and this time with reference to hip dysplasia Um, if um, therapists want to now they've got that information and they want to kind of form part of a circle of maybe physios or other allied health professionals in the know is there like an organization where they like to find people like you who are informed or is there a danger of trying to link up the physio who's not informed how do they make sure that they're linking up with someone in the know
1: uh that's I to do? <laughs> do i just email you, you check, is this person all right yep you're, you're very well you're very welcome to email me um anytime um I may just be useless again back to you for now. But no, that is on my list is the next thing is setting up a worldwide network of people mm-hmm. that know dysplasia you understand it and then we can drive out of that more research and understanding because I can say I rehab one way. My mm-hmm. colleague in Australia will rehab slightly differently, but it both works and we both so what are the differences, what are the similarities? where can we drive that research from and that understanding and come like they have done with FAI with a consensus of how we diagnose, how we manage, what's the right rehab post a surgery, what's the right conservative rehab and then how do we build on that so that that's that's in the pipeline. Working
0: Might be a little bit of time what with the one-year-old but um, <laughs> don't expect an immediate response but yes yeah, so they can contact you maybe through your is there a contact on the websites
1: Contact on websites, right, yeah. Instagram, just message
0: okay. me. Fantastic. That's right. Time. Well look, um Nikki Mansfield has said amazing. And um Nikki says this has been eye-opening. So glad I tuned in tonight. Thank you, Holly, and Matt. That it has been really cool. Um Holly well, thank and it seems for interacting so much
1: and asking questions. When I look around,
0: there doesn't seem to be many other people doing the work you do. It's not a topic which it's not, is it? No. Um so um, thanks to you for opening up people's eyes to this and um, and now hopefully you'll have at least 2600 people who are going to carry on your mission and just be a bit more informed and work with other because like i say soft tissue therapists these people are going to come to you in pain you know they, st- they often they come to us first because they just think oh, i'm knackered i'm in pain i'm fed up with my life i don't know what's going on i'll have a massage uh, everyone loves a massage you can pretty much guarantee it's an hour away from the kids or whatever or your partner or work and you, if you've got a massage therapist there who asks the right questions in the subjective rather than just slapping them down on a couch and prodding them and poking them you could change people's lives massively and guess what that person's going to keep coming to you once they even though they're going to see someone else you're not going to lose them and the person you send them to is going to remember you as the therapist the the, the lonely massage therapist working in a gym somewhere who actually referred that person on they're going to remember you and send loads of people your way so it's it makes business sense as well which is important looking ahead at 2023 anyway and it's all thanks to holly sopper doyle thank you so much for joining us
1: Right. Oh, thank you right. So for having me. Thank you. For we continue. And
0: what a great start to focus on the hip. I'm almost pleased. No, I can't sound pleased that Benoit was ill. That would be a ridiculous thing to say. But I'm um, really excited now for we're, we're continuing this uh, focus on the hip with that information. We're going to be uh, next week. Um, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Sarah Rowlands of Pure Sports Medicine, who's going to be talking about buttock pain, which again is a massive area um, of misdiagnosis, misinformation, jumping at assumptions and things. So it's a big area which. Um, Dr. Sarah Ronins is going to be breaking down. And then the week after, um, somebody who Dr. Sarah Rowlands works with, who is sports physio Emma Acton, is going to be going through the rehab and the things you can do in practice when you've had that person diagnosed properly or when they're sent to you. So it's going to be kind of a 2 part all to do with buttock pain, because I think that's an area where probably as, as, as clinicians, you get a lot of people with pain around the buttock region. and obviously on your courses you were told well obviously that's piriformis syndrome it's nothing else it's sciatica and that's about as far as it gets so next week and the week after will be all about looking at other alternatives and ruling stuff out um so yeah do join us for that um and that as always will be eight o'clock on the sports therapy association youtube channel that's it thanks people who joined us live tonight if you listen to the podcast do us a favor and leave a review It helps a good word of people and specialists like Holly actually get out there higher up on Google, which is what this is all about. So do leave us a review. Um, And if you've got any any questions, do feel free to email me, matt at thesta.co.uk. That's it. Holly, if you could stay there, I'm just going to shut down. But I'd like to say thank you to you as well. Just before you flake out, that'd be fantastic. So appreciate you doing this one year old baby. People in the live lounge again, thanks a lot. And hopefully we'll see some of you next week. Take care. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy.